Hello, and welcome to the next in our series of London Gallery Weekend podcasts. I'm Jan Daly, and I'm joined this week by two exceptional women. First, Justine Simons, London's Deputy Mayor for Culture and the Creative Industries, a great supporter of London Gallery Weekend, talks about what the arts and the cultural sphere mean for the life of the capital and for us all, and introduces a new initiative. Then, just before the second London Gallery Weekend opening, I trekked off to an industrial estate in northwest London and stepped into the Aladdin's Cave that is the studio of multidisciplinary artist Mandy Alsaye to see what Mandy's preparing for her special London Gallery Weekend performance. But before that, Justine Simons talks to me over Zoom from her London office. Justine is presiding over the Let's Do London campaign, a summer of world-class visual art for Londoners, all kicked off by London Gallery Weekend this Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So I'm delighted to be joined by Justine Simons, Deputy Mayor for Culture and the Creative Industries. Justine, You've talked in the past, I found this as a quote from one of the interviews you'd actually done for us at the FT, which was very nice, about London being the engine of the creative economy. So I wanted to ask you really about your thoughts about um, that creative economy overall, but also particularly the place of the commercial galleries within that ecosystem that that um, is now quite a complicated thing and very large. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. Really, really delighted to be talking to you and especially as we are about to launch the fantastic London Gallery Weekend again. Um, it's a great moment, I think, to reflect on, you know, culture and the part it plays in London, especially right now, I think, as we're coming out of the pandemic. I mean, I think for us, you know, for me, London, culture is a kind of, it's the DNA of London, I think. You know, I think it is a really big driver of our economy. Before the pandemic, it was generating over £50 billion a year, one in every six jobs in the capital was a creative one. But also it's part of our identity as a city. I think, you know, if you look back through the decades, you know, culture and the kind of creative story of London has really defined us, you know, and if we look at the art world you know I think London is a a global powerhouse really for art and you know this idea of all the different factors and the different kind of ingredients that make up that global powerhouse story in the art world it's like an ecosystem I think you know where you've got the kind of world-leading public galleries the world-leading commercial galleries the art fairs the auction houses the inspirational public art Um, on the streets and also the top art colleges you know I think what is really special about London is you've got all those elements of the ecosystem coming together um, to create that kind of real powerhouse for art in the city. During the pandemic really the whole thing I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I felt that the whole thing showed itself to be more fragile than we realised in a way because of the, well, because of the, what you said about the labour market and the creative practitioners of all sorts right across, you know, whether they're teaching in a college or whether they're making art or whether they're dancers or whatever. It was a really desperate time. And of course, the whole thing falls apart without the people, the institutions that's not really what it's about is it um do you feel that that as we come out of it that this is being properly restored or do you think that this ecosystem you've talked of has had has suffered real damage i think you're right i think that you know the cultural world has been hit really hard by the pandemic um, it was hit at the beginning of the pandemic and it's got a long tail i think as well Why is that? Because buildings had to shut and immediately, you know, people just couldn't work. Um, And the creative sector, quite uniquely, I think, is I think it's almost 99% small businesses and individual freelancers. So the structure of the industry is very kind of micro. But if you add the thing together, it is this great powerhouse. But, you know, within that, there is that fragility. And you may remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, 
you know, the emergency schemes that were put in place really were designed for people who were in full-time employment through large institutions, through large businesses. So, you know, along with us, we did a lot of advocacy and lobbying just to explain that freelancers and creatives and artists are the engine of this industry, you know, and there's a lot of kind of misperceptions, I think, really around about, you know, how much pay people get, you know, um, what their working conditions are. So I think we had, to, we found ourselves having to kind of do a lot of explaining about how the industry is structured and also a lot of advocacy and championing to get to get support through to people. Um, I think what we can see in terms of post-pandemic is, you know, Things are opening up at different points, I'd say. You know, if you look at the film industry, you know, a lot of production and shooting did manage to take place within the pandemic. There were quite tight COVID protocols. And that industry is actually bouncing back. But other areas are more difficult. You know, if you're a freelancer, you know, if you're an individual artist, you know, it's harder, I think, for people to get, to kind of reposition themselves, find their place back in, back in the kind of economy, really. I think that's absolutely right, and I think for for the for the galleries that take part in the in the weekend, as you say, it's quite hard to explain to people, isn't it? Because what reaches the, much of the general public are the astronomical prices paid for a few artworks by a few artists, and they don't understand what life is like. But for somebody who, let's say, somebody who runs a, a tiny gallery with maybe only two staff. Um, and their artists and, and, and what happened there. A lot of the support that, that you've been able to, to pr provide for them, and particularly this, this campaign of what you might call educating the wider public and possibly the government too, about um, what, what this industry actually is, because I don't know, I find every government loves to boast about the creative economy, but I'm not sure how well they really kind of kind of get, get what it's like for, for individual people. Um, did you find that it was useful to compare London to other major cities during this time? I mean, you founded and you're chair of the World Cities Culture Forum, which is a really global initiative about culture and the future of cities. Um, did you, were you, were you much in touch over the last couple of years about what was going on? Yeah, we were actually, um, the World Cities Culture Forum became a real lifeline actually in COVID. Um, what is it? It's a group of 40 world cities. So the really big cities around the world. Um, and it's people like me in these jobs um, running, you know, in city halls around um, the world who have this quite kind of strange, unique role where you're kind of halfway in between bureaucracy and politics and government and art. Um, and so quite quickly we just all got ourselves onto zoom calls and we kept them going and you know the really unusual thing was that we were all in this same journey at the same time so quite rapidly we were sharing you know what is happening to freelancers what are you doing how are you supporting them and you know a lot of big cities you know tend to work through institutions so the theory is a trickle-down theory where you fund a big institution and the theory is that that then reaches the smaller businesses and the freelancers but of course in covid the big institutions had so many problems of their own the money wasn't getting it anywhere else right so in fact a lot of world cities found themselves completely redesigning how they supported the cultural world and working for the first time with individual freelancers um, and in London, for example, we very rapidly put together um, a culture at risk emergency fund um, in about six weeks um, after um, the lockdown was declared. Um, and it was it was really designed for the most fragile bits of the ecosystem. So it was, you know, money to the 50 independent cinemas in London, money to, you know, individual studio, artist studios, um, money for grassroots music venues for LGBT clubs. So it was all the people who weren't, they, they weren't in the safety net. Um, and, and that programme has actually now been picked up by New York. So New York have now, in the last few weeks, the mayor of New York's just announced that they will be designing and launching a culture at risk office in New York, entirely based on what we're doing in London. And those conversations have all happened because we've, we've rapidly joined together to problem solve as world cities. 
That's amazing. It's a really fantastic thing that you that you did and that you continue to do, um, and I think that um, it's got it's got repercussions for everybody, um, especially. And, I mean, all all the whole cultural world is very international, but possibly the, the world of the visual arts even more than even more than most. Um, I wanted also to ask you about another um, uh, interesting scheme, which um, I believe that you. Um, launched and probably I don't know whether it still continues the creative land trust which yeah. is helps to ensure affordable studio spaces for artists um can yeah. you tell me about that I think that that's partnered partnered with the scheme in San Francisco have I got that right Not you sure. have yeah so yeah. yeah this is another um well just like New York have kind of borrowed our culture at risk model we borrowed the creative land trust from San Francisco um, so it's all come through this World Cities uh, Culture Forum network. I describe it as an IP-free zone where we can just steal each other's ideas, <laughs> and we do. So uh, a few years ago in San Francisco, they hosted our annual summit for the World Cities Culture Forum. And, you know, one of the things that many cities have in common with London, and especially San Francisco, is the high price of real estate. Um, and so... You know, for San Francisco, of course, you know, all the influx around Silicon Valley has meant, you know, a real inflation of property prices in the heart of San Francisco. So they've got an affordable housing challenge, you know, that's that's kind of on a par and greater than ours. And and that, of course, does impact on the, the creative community. So, you know, artists and creators were finding it impossible to work in the city, you know. And, of course, as we've said, these big you know, the the economic value and the, the important role that culture plays in these cities is entirely down to individual creative people doing great stuff in their studios. And if they can't afford to live in your city and they can't afford to have a studio, the thing kind of falls apart, really. So everyone is interested around the world in how you can keep creatives in a city. And so the mayor of San Francisco um, basically gave some money as a kind of startup to test this idea of whether there could be a social investment model to buy property and then um, hold it in trust in the long term at an affordable rate for artist studios and quite rapidly lots of philanthropists and social investors came around the idea um, and it's called the CAS the Community Action Stabilisation Trust um, and so when I was there I came back to London and I was telling Amir Sadiq Khan about it and uh he said, that's brilliant. That's exactly what we need here. So we did, we've, we've done a kind of London version of that. And it is a standalone charitable trust now, social investment model. Um, and it was kickstarted with a combination of startup funding from the Mayor of London, the Arts Council and Bloomberg Philanthropies. And yeah, it's bought space now. And that's its idea. It, the idea is to buy or be gifted property or to bring social investment in to purchase property that will hold it for the purpose of creating affordable workspace for creatives in the long term because owning property is the only real way to crack this challenge you have to kind of own the asset um, so it's an intervention really um, and we're right at the start of it but you know so far so good lots of interest in it lots of investments and you know lots of people coming forward you know, to um, bring property forward. I, I think a lot of philanthropy as well with, you know, we've having conversations with people who would normally buy, support artists by buying their work and people saying, well, we there will be no work if we can't have artists in the city. So we need to think a little bit more broadly about how we support artists and what they need to produce their best work in our city. So it's a kind of public-private partnership initiative. Is that the way it's yeah. set up or is it set, it's set up as an independent charity or foundation? It's set up as an independent charity, um, but in, in establishing it, it was a mix of public funding, the Mayor of London and philanthropy coming together to get that kind of pooled resource, um, that startup funding to establish it. And now it, it can invite other investment in, social investment in and other philanthropy and other fundraising um, in a way that if we were just doing this within government, we wouldn't be able to do so. It allows it to just be more fleet of foot um, and entrepreneurial as well. Um, and then the other um, two ideas that sit alongside that are uh, a new experiment around zoning. So we've we've designed and invented uh, 
six creative enterprise zones, and they're based on the idea of the business enterprise zone, which people are more familiar with. But the idea of a creative enterprise zone is that they are areas in London where artists and creatives can put down roots in these places that they've really played a role in developing and building. So, you know, if you are in a creative enterprise zone, you there is affordable workspace, there is preferential business rates, there is support and advice, they are in communities so that when jobs do become available, you know, they are open to a wider group of people at a local level. Um, and we've piloted those and they've each, they've been super successful and they've leveraged in, you know, tens of millions of extra pounds. They played a great role in the pandemic. They were a lifeline for lots of artists. And it was a way in which people who wanted to support a creative community could funnel resources into them. Um, and so, and they've all got a different character. So for example, Hackney Wish and Hackney Wick and Fish Island Creative Enterprise Zone is all about artist studios because there's a big concentration of artists there. Ones in West London are more focused on TV and video. So they've all got a, a slightly different character to them. Um, and they've been super successful. Local local boroughs have really liked them as a model that they can relate to and, and a way for them to support in a strategic way, as opposed to trying to kind of work out how they support individual artists and individual practitioners and studios so that we're going to grow and we're going to kind of accredit that as a zone as a new zoning model for London um, and then the final piece of it is uh, we've written the first ever cultural infrastructure plan for London so like normally if you're a major city you tend to plan in advance for things like the roads that you need, the public transport you need, the school places you need, the houses you need. You never normally plan for culture or cultural infrastructure, but we know that it's the reason people come to cities. It's so important to cities. Why aren't we thinking about this in the long term? So for the first time, we've written a cultural infrastructure plan for London, and it wraps all of these things together. So you get this whole kind of, all these different ingredients come together to support spaces in the immediate firefighting way embedding into the planning system and for the long term um, and so now uh, if you go onto city hall's website you'll see this kind of evolving kind of granular map of uh, where all the cultural spaces are in london that's never existed before and it's an open source map so if you know that there is an artist studio at the end of your street and it's not on the map you can add it onto the map um, and that's a great planning tool as well so if you are a planner a local planner you're someone driving a big development um, you can you know what's there because half of the problem is people don't know what's there. If your gallery is behind closed doors, you might inadvertently knock it down, or you know, do you might not realise the gifts that are kind of around you. You know, so it's it's quite a kind of detailed and multifaceted approach, but it is I call it acupuncture. It's trying to kind of use our at City Hall use our kind of power and influence in the best most tactical way to support the creative ecosystem of the capital. That sounds brilliant because you've effectively, um, I think you're effectively offering a blueprint as well to, to, for, for this kind of growth to uh, local authorities and to, and presumably also something that other cities, other cities can copy. Looking to the future, and all this, all this is very, very future focused, isn't it? It's wonderfully, um, wonderfully so, but we realise that Things are going to get tough. Things are tough already. The financial situation is looking quite uh, grim. And I just wonder whether you foresee any policy changes that you might have to make, any alterations that um, will be inevitable. I think what's clear to us is that, you know, on the one hand, you know, we have all realised how fragile culture is in our city. On the other hand we've realised how fundamentally important it is to the fabric and identity of London. And, you know, if you look at what people have missed, it's the thing that they have missed. You know, they've missed kind of going to theatres, they've missed going to watch movies, they've missed going to art galleries, you know. Um, so that can't be underestimated. And I think as we're kind of moving through this pandemic, you know, culture has to be front and centre. It has to drive our recovery. And that is both from an economic perspective but also from the perspective of public confidence and culture's ability to bring us together because that's the other thing that we've missed you know we've missed that human connection and that's the thing that culture brings so for all of those reasons you know for me and for Sadiq it couldn't be more important that culture is at the heart of the story of London it's reasserted 
as a kind of you know key to how we develop and we did a survey actually with all our world cities and you know we, we were all quite worried actually that you know in the face of quite you know very very serious challenges you know people not having healthcare, people losing their homes during the pandemic you know food you know supply chains around food you know quite big you know issues that cities were dealing with we were worried that culture might just drop down the list and all the gains and advocacy that we've all been doing over many years would be lost but in fact the opposite happened and you know we we recently polled all of our cities and i think 90 percent of our 40 cities said that in a post-pandemic world culture will be more important than it was before um, and these are honest people. These are my peers. These are kind of cynical policy people. Um, and that's what they saw, you know, and I think that that is cause for great optimism. I think there is a real opportunity here to kind of reassert and celebrate the value of art, of culture, of creativity in London and in cities all around the world. And with the importance of culture at the heart of, of um cultural policy in 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 London and other major cities uh, tourism you mentioned it very briefly earlier but tourism is incredibly important and of course visiting the the city even visitors to the city is very very important as well to our London galleries um, commercial galleries who of course make you know make make their money from visitors just as they make their money from 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 Londoners and and people from around the country so tell me a little more about um where tourism fits into your vision. Yeah, t- you're absolutely right. Tourism is so important to London. And from a cultural perspective, you know, four out of five visitors to London say that culture is the reason they come. So culture is at the heart of the story. Um, and we have uh, been running a campaign. It's called Let's Do London. And it is the mayor's kind of invitation, really, um, to come back to London and to get back out into the theatres, into the art galleries. Um, And that will soon become an international um, tourism campaign as things start to open up. So that's that's really important for us to kind of encourage, build confidence, bring people back into the city for what they love. And, you know, having the um, London Galleries weekend in May is perfect timing in a way because... What is fantastic about it is it takes you all around the city. You know, the the 150 galleries that are taking part will reveal a new side to London, I think. Um, everyone knows about the big galleries. They know about the Tate, the National Gallery, the Royal Academy. But, you know, right over in Peckham, in Fitzrovia, all across the city, there's a fantastic kind of plethora of brilliant galleries and artists to see. And so, you know, I think um, London Gallery Week is going to be a really important um, story and a really important offer when we are inviting people back to our city. That is a fabulously optimistic, very wonderful note on which to to end. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been fascinating to hear um, of all your plans and everything you've done and are going to do. And um, I think everybody will be very, very cheered up by it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Now, from the offices of power to an artist's studio. As we've said, London Gallery Weekend opens this weekend, and Mandy Alsae tells me about the work she's creating in her gallery, Tadias Ropak. Well, I'm here with Mandy Alsae in her amazing studio in North London. There are paintings all over the walls and all over the floor. Well, when I say paintings, they're works, which I can see as collages of newsprint, of uh, pieces of other print like book covers, um, posters, a whole range of things which she blows up, then applies to, I think it's canvas, and then paints over. So Mandy, tell us a little bit about, you know, what we're actually seeing here in this fantastic studio. I think you described it quite accurately. For lack of space, I've used the floors and walls. When something gets, you know, a layer finishes, I'll staple on the on the wall. I do everything on the floor. Um, I'm a self-identified collagist, which I just I just figured this out recently. It's an easier way than saying I work across all mediums, you know, because collage can apply to many different fields. Um, a layering process, a process-driven um, practice. 
um, that looks at uh, abstract notions of, of, of his history and um, different fields coming together. So tell me about the newsprint that you're using. There's, um, I can see the Evening Standard up there, but also mm-hmm. the Financial Times, which is the paper I work for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can spot the typeface a mile away. <laughs> so the free supplements like this, the Standard, um, I think those things, it started because I'm also uh, a hoarder, self-identified hoarder too. Um, so this thing of like passing by something and, and thinking it's useful. So that's, I would collect the words in that way. They, they'd have certain meaning or salience. So, For London Gallery Weekend mm-hmm. in particular, you are doing a performance. Mm-hmm. So tell me a bit about how you got from, uh, from painting, from collage. I think you also make three-dimensional work, don't mm-hmm. you, sculpture? How did you get from there to performance? Or did the performance come first? Um, I think it's always in the practice. I just didn't know it explicitly because you know the whole making process as you can see that's a stage right there um and it's very physical but um more obviously I think in 2020 when everyone's like issues just came to the surface I think this applied to everyone in some way um I stopped being able to make painting and have I just stopped being having this kind of uh, ability to be in that language and and think that way so I was just all I could do is like I couldn't read I couldn't listen to things I was like what I describe as like a, a nervous breakdown or an episode that I wasn't aware of because there's nothing I could identify as at the time just a really bad time and I couldn't um, communicate in the way that I'm used to and everything was changing in my head and I was just pacing a lot and I was physically agitated so this thing of like when I realized I'd lost my practice or I couldn't speak in that language I call it this is a language right I couldn't approach it in the same way it was just all I was left with is my body and this excess of of um agitation and luckily I had this framework around me the gallery these kind of deadlines that were still in place so I had deadlines to me anyway like many artists like I sleep in the space I'm covered literally with the skin of my work um so it wasn't a big stretch to kind of just frame that frame what I was at the time and at that time it was like um I was exercising many demons and there's a nice thing about this kind of abstract field where you don't need to explain yourself because things are already in place to be uh understood or ambiguity is tolerated so I remember one of my friends saying, oh, I'd like to talk about this one day, but it was it was felt. Whatever I had made in that time was understood. So I, I saw that as like a success in terms of like, there's a transmission of knowledge that was received, even though at the time there was many delusional processes happening in my life and in my head. So that to me like tethered me back to reality. And from that, I came out of it slowly it took up to a year um I moved out my old studio I I lived moved back with my parents and through my body I could go back into my normal functioning say over a period of time well it sounds horribly painful I'm so sorry you had to go through all that it sounds nightmarish and that was um, of course during the first really intense lockdown yeah and I think a lot of people and certainly a lot of artists felt very um isolated and cut off from everything they knew so I'm really sorry you went through that on the other hand you obviously made something fantastic out of it when you when you did come out of it um so the first performance then you made that for freeze is that Mm -hmm. right that's correct and so now that you're back again painting and doing do you feel that you're you're work is back to where it was or even you know more stronger than stronger than ever but are you going to keep performance as part of your part of your very multidisciplinary practice I think so I think like the learning process is very important for me and so when I butt up against these like experiences in my life that will just uh infuse that kind of learning process and it it makes sense because I always feel I'm going towards like building of worlds like I mean, I and I think you know this idea of infusing sound or movement just is it was the kind of trajectory I was going on anyway um and just thinking about different languages coming together 
and not relying on the on the more kind of like classical foundation which painting is often seated, sat on do you know what I mean um, mm-hmm. his, historically as well so it's just a, a way of um, yeah being able to layer this world mm. and do you do it everywhere you go I mean I know you've just opened a show in California haven't you mm-hmm. and d- did you make performances there as well yes oh fantastic <laughs> it goes with everything that's brilliant yeah. tell me a little bit about your background I can see really fascinating um orthography and calligraphy different writings um i'm sorry i'm so ignorant is that is that classical arabic or yeah. that is yeah. yes where were you born i was born in malaysia mm-hmm. um but we didn't stay there long it's just a, a a passport issue and then we went straight back to where my mother was working at the time and father in to Sharjah, then left Sharjah to um the uk when I was six. When you were six. Yeah, so yeah. I more or less, I feel like a Londoner, yes. but those, that beginning fracture, let's call it, does definitely affect um, how I relate to uh, culture and language. Well, it must do because, you know, for those first six years, the, the images, the visual images in Sharjah could hardly be more different in mm. terms of everything from the colour mm. of the sky to the colour of oh, the buildings totally, to, yeah. the, to the... Um, but also... Um, I mean, now it's quite, it's a relatively rich art environment. I mean, it does have its um, Biennale and much else. Mm-hmm. But um, perhaps when you were a child, less so. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I'd say also my kind of um, summers um, to Malaysia, where my mum had to visit her parents, that really affected this kind of my idea of colour and sensuality in the environment. Um, so yeah, those things you don't think about them, but they definitely infuse into your imaginary. I can certainly um, see a, a, such a range of influences and um, palettes here. And um, you've been with your current gallery, Ropac, for just a few years. Is it? Mm-hmm. Is it just? Yeah, just mm-hmm. a few. Um, yeah. So, so in a sense, I think it's fair to say you've moved into the big time have got um, very fantastic international shows. Has that been a stressful process as well? I mean, it must have been quite odd because your, you know, your years with them have been sort of pandemic years, really, haven't they? I mean, that's a good question because um, it came at a time where that, what I just described happened. Um, And I was putting on a big group show with them, but I had a gallery previous to them. So I was already kind of like um, accustomed to it how things work but because of the practice it's so ambitious I needed that to happen mm-hmm. so I could build out this um, world so actually strangely enough that was the least stressful like I have such a great support team in, in Road Pack I work with Julia Peyton Jones who's like just magical mm-hmm. um, so that support system was actually really important at a time when things were really like felt really um, unstable. Mm. Oh, good. Well, that's good to hear because that's what galleries are supposed to do Mm -hmm. for their artists. I mean, obviously, the first thing they do is sell your work, but there's an awful lot else, Mm -hmm. like like protecting you and helping you and looking after your career development. Mm -hmm. That that sounds fantastic. So what next? I mean, where where do you want to where do you want to take this all? Do you think that um, you've got a lot further to go with? the same sort of um, I mean it's, it's almost infinite the possibilities mm-hmm. here I'm looking down um, a long rectangle of a room with there's no windows it, and there's just strip lights down the down the middle so it's quite bare it's quite fierce although we're sitting on a lovely comfy leather sofa which is very nice um, and um, as I said before, it's absolutely covered in canvases, but and it seems that that you know this this could go on almost indefinitely. But totally. do you feel that you're moving along to something else? Have you got other things that you have in mind for your next show? Um, yeah, I'm always thinking about film. About film, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So if there's a space that I want to create, is one that is a film, a non-narrative film. Uh-huh. Um, thinking about like psychical spaces and how I would orchestrate that. 
So it painting is just one level of the stage for that. It's just the skin of the or the palette of the set. So there's so many. There's just loads I have in my head. I'm just I, I yeah, I'm not. I don't want to jinx it, but that that's my direction. I always have felt more influenced by by that field more than um, painting. It's just that you you become a painter because that's like that's the most recognizable totem of your practice. Mm. So. Have you um have you made some films already, or have you started on that kind of work? Um, I've made like short video pieces, but mm. they're always in relation to um, the other works, so not in its like singularity now. Yeah, so it's not the so far it hasn't been the primary piece; it's been yeah. a spin-off from yeah. different pieces. Exactly. Yeah. So to, yes, to move to that stage where the film is the primary piece is a very it's a different kind mm -hmm. of big move, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And would you perform in your films? Does it go with performance or would it, would it be, um, or do you see yourself more as a director behind the camera? Um, um, I think each project would uh, dictate that. Like um, I had to be in my performance in 2020 because my body needed to express something. And this recent one in LA, less so, but as there as like a passive object, a painter. Um, so depending on the on the piece, it will decide that I think. Mm. But I, it's it's not like I have I, I fancy being in front of the camera or anything. It's whether the work needs it or not. Now I can't actually see at the moment any of your three dimensional work here. But um, tell me tell me a bit about that. What 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 do you use? What mediums do you use? So that's a really important part of the practice that I've had to kind of like cap for this um, last two years because the studio is small but there's another unit down the street uh -huh. which is just kind of like storage for my hoarding objects so the objects <laughs> are not sculpted material they're literally just stuff I can't throw away and I've just managed to find a healthy outlet to give them some kind of um, legitimacy or space yeah they're gonna have a life yeah I, I, went, I wondered what was in there because like, <laughs> when I knocked on the door um, the very nice doc opened it and she said you can't come in here this is too, <laughs> <laughs> too messy it's so cramped and like you know um my studio staff work there and i i don't realize how much of an imposition my stuff is for them there's one point where i brought in two crab shells from like a bad date and i'm a double cancer so that had special meaning for mm -hmm. me and tomorrow's like no that's where I draw the line. No fish <laughs> shells in like the office working area. So I had to put that downstairs and I realized that if I look at my practice, it's always about this filling out of space. There's this too muchness of things and that's how I feel comfortable in the world, mm. but not necessarily everyone else. No, especially if they're trying to actually get some get the, some work done that yeah. <laughs> to a timetable. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that's fantastic. So, um, so does that mean that you use found objects mostly in your okay yes. i'd modify them somewhat but yeah. I, yeah. I would never like start from scratch in that okay. sense it's the same with a blank canvas there's no blank canvases there's always just stuff that just um creates a problem for the ground mm -hmm. that i relate to you you start with the found materials mm -hmm. that you apply to the canvases yeah. or in the case of a three-dimensional object you the thing yeah, itself yeah the thing itself and then that that speaks to you and you yeah make the work and then i there. follow a certain mm. logic that will create some kind of like patina around it so these are for the performance uh, for london gallery weekend that were like early in the process and i've just like put these headlines because i thought okay it's going to be in a public space i want it to have a white palette but it starts off with a very bruised um layer so the actual um headlines that I've nicked from these stands and um, there's a paint suit in there and different things because that's I think the most recognizable in, in the outdoor space is I notice those words in, in that context so um, yes I think we're all used to reading those posters mm -hmm. aren't we because the, there's something very familiar to our mm -hmm. eye yeah. and quite often I'm I, I walk past one and I realize I've got some words in my head and I've no idea where they came from or where, mm. where I saw them Earworm. and the fact is they've just they just imprint themselves on you, yeah. don't they? And then you yeah. think, why am I thinking landmark ruling on civil partners? Yeah, and depending how good the hook is, it's like yeah. a song, I think, in Psychosis that I remember that happening. Like certain lyrics 
would just really just repeat in your head and people can relate to that just on a normal level but it's just like that to the nth degree like with anything that anyone says and it they hold special like they hold too much meaning so this idea of like aberrant salience was something that I am really interested in so how these words speak to you or like imprint as you said is a good word um right at the back you can see there's a one of these concrete poems that come from those headlines that say we get them or we end and they're coming from like all these kind of collage chance encounter of words and I've just highlighted those things and that's how these words would pop out at you when when you're not well um and how actually the news functions on a just a more the level like how the kind of the slang or alliteration would work like the british kind of putting together headlines different to the new york way they have their own version of that crassness which i really appreciate or just like you know how the kind of slang works in northwest london versus like south i'm like really interested in that kind of um plasticity so these are floor cloths basically Mm -hmm. for your performance Mm -hmm. which is spread out on the floor richly painted beautifully lovely sort of quite muted tones but very powerful um both over and under the um the collaged um posters and things and stuck on there looks like a, a hazmat suit or something yeah yeah it's a yeah yeah. I, yeah i think we i think we get that mm-hmm. um oh it's fantastic and there's two of them so, yeah yeah and so when you do your performance on those, do, the, do, you, do you mess it up? I mean, is that the end of it? I mean, is it a, sort of disposable as a floor? Um, I just keep, I keep all the floors from all my installations because it mm. can turn into, it can go into the uh, uh, 3D work or something. And mm. they kind of like register history. So um, we're going to stretch that over the platform. So they will effectively be like two paintings that the performers are relating it relating to so, so it's interesting having so you're moving on your work yeah. in a way yeah yeah, yeah 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 so it's as if your work is kind of i can't wait to see you um so it's almost as if your work has come to life mm-hmm. up through your feet into yeah. your body yeah it's like i want to contextualize the painting through like immediate actions of the body um because when we see paintings in the gallery it's such a removed relation like it's almost this thing that you can't get to because especially if you, you're not from that language. So I kind of remembered when I was ill and someone was talking about a hang. And like, to me, I was just literally thinking of the word hanging. Everything mm. take, took on a like, mm. a, like nefarious tone. Yes. And like a staple gun, when you stretch it over a, uh, a stretcher, a stretcher bars, it's, it's a really violent sound. So thinking of like the history embedded in, in, in this, um, process of, of representation is, is really important to me so it's like even when you remove the bodies or the performance it still registers that something has happened um and that i think would ideally change the way you look at these objects mm. yes i love i love that idea because they've got they've got so many lives already embedded in them mm. yeah mm. um do you do you write in arabic no, no. That's, so that's that's another printed piece. Yeah, that's yes. father's stuff. Um, also have like my from my mother's side, her brother um, is also a calligraphy master in, in Chinese. Oh my but goodness. I think me not being able to access it is like part of it. The same way that you know this whole art language is is still very foreign to me. I'm inside and outside of it. So thinking of how I can use different languages to have my own relation um, and always modeling that relation did you go to art school yes I did so learning about this new thing now which is theater so I'm working with this choreographer Alethea and I I realized how like um, green I am to it and I didn't even know for example that the two dancers that I worked with for the LA show were taken from the black swan guy um, Benjamin Millipede the LAPD dance um, group and it's just that kind of ignorance that actually allows the work to have these um these new trajectories like mm. i think if i had come from that i would have a certain a different relation to it different reverence which would change you know this this meeting of stuff so moving back to another thought about your performance is there um something about how you reach your audience which is different paintings on a gallery wall are amazing mm-hmm. and the 
especially the best of the big galleries are opening up now, but it's still a little bit, elitist is too strong a word, but it's a little bit removed from ordinary people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those things I'm always thinking about. Um, as my friend was saying, yes, just yesterday, like if I hadn't gone to this um, voice show with you I wouldn't have an entry point and only because he was dating this German girl at the time like he lives around me in Halston he wouldn't even know that he is able to go into that building so it's just these like very specific encounters in our youth or our formation that allow us access to this whole field that's very shut off so when you come out of like Oxford Street Station and you hear this beatboxer and there's a huge crowd around there there's certain universality about you know a rhythm so I kind of like want to kind of infuse that layer into it because there's a, a, a bodily relation that isn't dependent upon a kind of interpolated subject into this art space, which is something I'm always thinking about because I always feel um, very uh, alien to that, even though I understand the language. So I think it comes from this place of like being able to like code switch and growing up, it's even bet- with my parents, like. If um, you know you have parents from from another country, you, you speak a certain way and you speak differently. Everyone does this to some extent, mm. but if you can do it on multiple levels all the time, then it also would apply to class and how you enter like educational spaces or institutions and how you show up with certain um, presentations of yourself. So mm. um, being able to access different levels and use different levels. So that's also similar in the practice of. Um, my choreographer Alethea Antonia who actually incidentally I didn't know this till we started working on this project but her studio that she goes visits to is around here so she's staying with me now with um, of Russell Maliphant and she works alongside him um, and she has a, a, a specific role where she's like um, collaborating on, on the on the moves with him and we always talk about this formal kind of training and negotiating a formal language and how we can bring ourselves and our histories into that and having to kind of like repress that or bring it forward in different spaces. So that's that's a kind of shared theme that we're always um, thinking about. So it's, ni- it's nice to see how it plays out in different in different areas of fields. That's really interesting. And I expect they're learning from you as well. Um, because they're absorbing your language and you're mm-hmm. absorbing theirs. Mm. And so, spaces, like, so Aletha coming into, like, a gallery space and how that relates to, like, the studio space from what she does is, is also really good to compare notes on. Yeah, sounds fantastic. Tell me about the music side of your performance work. Um, so this is a really important element now, I think, in the practice and for the last few shows I've had soundscapes layering the kind of whole um, installations so it, it's more like how do I create an embodied sense of the psychical so I'm always thinking about psychical spaces like right now in the studio it's like you're inside my head you know and that it's just a, its own universe right so um, I work with my long-term collaborator Lily Oaks who's a self-taught musician, composer and producer and um, she can do magic with all these um, scraps of stuff I give her so this collaging process that I apply in my painting applies to the sound through sampling and um, I will just give her this file of stuff it could be like this mumbling from my parents in the kitchen or like utensils or just the toilet right upstairs as a, as a grime studio which I find interesting so I'd hear like certain like reverb from their, their sub and if I pick up here it has a specific quality and she's been researching all kind of like frequencies for different carceral facilities like hospitals and prisons in different parts of the world and someone who's not sound based wouldn't pick up those things but infuses the work with a a certain feel and then going from those kind of like more undetectable frequencies to more obvious like references um like the structure of a four to the floor um hip-hop beats like minimal like um 
ones where it would just give it would just give you this feeling of like there's about to be a drop so that to me is like a way of integrating like a relation without um talking about like the themes and just having that immediate um immediate feeling like that's really important to me when you're encountering a work i like the idea that um the collage theme kind of runs through everything mm -hmm. right into um in, so into the into the movement the choreography into the music mm. um into the visual work and mm. into the um into your your performance as well do you do you think of it as dance or do you think of it as performance art i mean it's quite a i mean really that to my mind there isn't much difference but people sometimes mm. have quite a strong sense mm. of no i'm not dancing mm -hmm. i'm you know i'm performing or vice versa mm -hmm. don't know. as a whole i would say i'd call it a collage. a collage i think that makes sense to me um but like your um, question is really important because I think from all these kind of fields that creates the problem. So it's like the performance part, like are you a performer and what rights you have like being here? So those those kind of questions I'm really interested in because you can only appear when you've learned the language, let's say. So if when things come together like that, that is kind of an experiment. So in LA, I like I had this moment where I was like, ecstatic because like my delusional ideas of this world came together like weirdly everything fitted and up to that point there was lots of tension between us like Alethea, Lily and I because we we're speaking all these languages saying like you, you don't get me you don't see me you don't know and then we put it together in space and we actually are like really speaking the same language and to see it fuse is like it's truly like an experiment of love really and I felt Re that was my happiest point just seeing them work together seeing these things come together with lighting and everything and in that way there's a choreography of of things to build a world that sounds fantastic well i think it's going to be a real highlight of london gallery weekend Thank which you, is Jan. coming up and your first one's on friday right yeah yeah well it's been wonderful to talk to you mandy it's thanks been really so much wonderful jan It's been a real pleasure to talk to two inspiring powerhouse women, very different, but united by their commitment to art and all it can do for us as individuals and for our social world. London Gallery Weekend opens on Friday 13th of May and runs through the whole weekend. Do visit the website at londongalleryweekend.art to see the whole range of what's on offer across the capital. More than 130 galleries offering exhibitions, performances, events, guided tours and curated routes. There's so much to explore and discover and enjoy. I hope you come and visit us and have a great time. Goodbye for now and I hope to see you in the galleries. And to find out more, visit the London Gallery Weekend website or follow us on social media at London Gallery Weekend. This podcast is a co-production between London Gallery Weekend and In Talks With, and the music is written and produced by Harun Mirza, licensed by Outputs 2021. Until next time, I'm Jan Daly. See you in the galleries.